This is the Green Blues Show, the latest news, a bit of blues. Today, precarious employment, the new normal. Venezuela struggles to chart its own path, the international community breathing down its neck. Prairie heat, visions of a future where winters are short, summers hot, and health fails. And the forever legacy of climate change. Forget about life in 2050. What will life on Earth be like in 500 years? Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. There is no rule of law in the world today, not in human affairs, not for the planet. Since the launch of what a group of researchers dubbed the Great Acceleration, 1950 is the year they've pegged, humans have laid down a globe-girdling stratum of concrete, asphalt, aluminum, heavy metals, pesticides, radionuclides, and an inconceivably huge volume of plastic, now well dispersed as microfibers in the world's ocean sediments. Meanwhile, our living relations have been vanishing at an unprecedented rate, not since the smoldering end of the Permian, Earth's greatest extinction event 250 million years ago, has Earth experienced such a crash. In international relations, it's the law of the jungle. The five most powerful countries on Earth get to pick and choose which laws they'll abide by, doling out slices of impunity to allies and clients. Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad dropped barrel bombs on hospitals and kindergartens without fear because Russia had his back. Kim Jong-un can brandish nukes because that's China's backyard. It's all nothing compared to the lawlessness of the British and the French selling high-performance arms systems to deep-pocketed human rights abusers and the truly colossal crimes of the United States that's been sponsoring and waging wars around the planet in the name of freedom and democracy, for over 70 years. By one estimate, the U.S. has had a hand in the deaths of over 20 million people since the Second World War. It's enough to make a grown-up cry, or a laugh, to make it all go away. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. I cannot keep from crying sometimes No, I cannot keep from crying sometimes Though my heart is full of sorrow and my eyes are full of tears I just can't keep from crying sometimes I thought when she first left me I'd get on a little while Soon it'd be all over And I'd journey with a smile But the thoughts as I get older When I think of what I told her I laugh to keep from crying sometimes Highway, and I'm 
traveling night and day, but I just can't keep from crying sometimes. I cannot keep from crying sometimes. No, I cannot keep from crying sometimes. Oh, my heart is full of sorrow and my Eyes are full of tears, well I just can't keep from crying sometimes I thought when she first left me, I'd get on a little while well, Soon it'd be all over and I'd journey with a smile But the thoughts as I get older, when I think of what I told her I laugh to keep from crying sometimes. Davy Graham, I Can't Keep From Crying Sometimes, from his classic 1965 release, Folk, Blues, and Beyond. You are listening to The Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Compared to global environmental destruction and war, precarious employment seems like a minor worry. Green Blues Show associate Sarah Aronson spoke with me about that slice of the North American population trapped in low-pay, precarious employment. And what do we mean by that, precarious work? Well, as the name implies, it's work that doesn't have stability built into it. So traditionally, when you think about good jobs, you think about uh, an employer-employee relationship that's enduring, that has benefits associated with it, such as sick time, such as medical benefits, unemployment, and so on, the, the, the rights that have been fought for and won by the labor movement. But precarious work turns this on its head. Precarious work is work that's temporary, that's uh, based on a contract, often part-time, with no, no, no guaranteed hours or benefits. And amongst the most vexing of these situations these days is this new type of corporation that's different from all the other corporations of the past, though no less powerful, a corporation like, uh, like Uber, which somehow seems to be uh, exempt from labor laws. Uh, t- tell me about, about Uber workers and, and their attempts to to organize themselves and some of the difficulties they face. Sure. Well, when it comes to labor laws, the issue with Uber, companies like that, is that instead of regarding the people that work for the app as actual employees, they look at them, they call them independent contractors, which is kind of a strange term because they don't get to control the prices they charge. They don't get to control their working conditions. Yes, they get to choose what jobs they take, but the drivers for Uber, for example, have to pay for their cars, they have to pay for their gas, so if the price of gas goes up, it's on them, not the company. And uh, if there's any accidents, they're liable, they have to deal with their insurance companies. Uber just collects the money, charges the customers, runs the technology platform, and uh, as a result of calling its employees contractors, it gets uh, to skirt labor laws. So the benefits that would normally go along with a, a work relationship don't accrue to uh, people that work for app companies. And the thing is, a person can also work for more than one company at the same time. And so it's, it's not really clear who's responsible for making sure workers have these additional benefits. So a person could be working 40 or more hours a week. And in fact, these companies will incentivize working long hours, but there might not be overtime and there will not be benefits associated with it. So it's, it's sort of like a legal loophole that they are able to go through. 
What other examples can you give me about precarious employment in, in different sectors and how folks are trying to to find new ways to collectively bargain and unionize, uh, given the fact that they're working in such precarious ways? Sure. Well, there's a few stories from around the world that I've been looking at lately. So, for example, there are situations where workers are working full-time and they're working on an ongoing basis, um, but they're not considered permanent employees. And, for example, in India, cement workers. Uh, there's a lot of precarious cement workers, and there's efforts to unionize. Um, but the difficulty with unionizing precarious workers is that oftentimes with employers, the conditions of their contracts don't allow them to be part of the union. So the idea is to make the tent wider for unions to make it so that these precarious workers can come in to the tent. And other examples might be uh, areas like university teaching, uh, where you, you end up with a lot of adjunct professors, as they're, they're called, or sessional professors, as they're called in Canada. And uh, again, the same situation, people working for years for contracts that may or may not be renewed, but often are renewed on a continuous basis, are getting paid less, have fewer opportunities for professional development. And um, but, but unions have been making progress. In the United States, for example, they've been unionizing adjunct professors, they've been unionizing graduate students, uh, teaching assistants, research assistants, as well. Um, areas that haven't been unionized up till now, like the digital media, for example, are recently undergoing, have recently been undergoing union drives. So uh, places like Salon, Huffington Post, Gawker, Vice, are all in the midst of uh, union drives right now. I'm actually very interested in the possibility for people that would not normally be considered workers in the traditional sense, like covered under traditional labor law, to have this opportunity. Because nowadays, there are so many different ways that people are bringing in money. And that, that's one actually characteristic of what's get, getting called the, the, the precariat. It's like a new social class. The precariat. Yeah, the precariat. People who are basically in precarious work. And one of the characteristics is that they're getting their money from all sorts of different places. So the ability to organize, the ability to have a union represent them, to get a better deal with the organizations they're interacting with has got to be a plus. How must policy change, labor policy, the labor policy framework in countries like Canada? How must it evolve in order to, and public policy, in order to take into account the way the, the economy and the labor market is evolving? Well, people are talking about policy solutions that will allow precarious workers to have the same benefits that full-time workers, uh, permanent workers have. And um, some of the policy solutions have been, for example, um, creating accounts, like basically benefit accounts that the various companies would pay into. And uh, that way it would be sort of portable. And there's this notion of separating benefits, social benefits, from the labor relationship to begin with. In fact, some of these people are advocating, um, for example, Guy Standing, the fellow who who came up with the idea of the precariat, is advocating for a universal minimum income as a way of helping people achieve security. Because one of the big problems being in the precariat is the lack of security and the anxiety. And the other thing that policymakers can do is can, they can look at the actual categories of worker, because one of the reasons why companies are able to get around paying uh, benefits and following labor laws in, in certain situations is because rather than having their employees classified as employees, they're called independent contractors, but they can reevaluate. The governments can look at this and say, are these employees really independent contractors? And if they're not really independent contractors because they don't control the conditions of work, they don't control the prices and so on, and they're not really employees because they don't get the benefits, they don't get the guarantees, then they're in some sort of in-between category. And what policymakers can do 
is take a look at coming up with a new category of worker. Sarah Aronson, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be here, Dave. Sarah Aronson is a Winnipeg-based writer and commentator. This is Jimmy Lee Robinson. Times is getting hard. Venezuela continues to be swept by economic and political turmoil. In state government elections held earlier this month, the ruling socialists, led by Nicolas Maduro, won 17 out of 27 races. The opposition Democratic Unity Coalition was not happy, nor were the United States and Canada, who slapped sanctions on Venezuela for not being democratic enough. For an alternative analysis of the current situation in Venezuela, I spoke with Gabriel Hetland. Hetland is an assistant professor of Latin American, Caribbean, and U.S. Latino studies at the State University of New York in Albany. I'd like to ask you, uh, Gabriel Hetland, where where the Constituent Assembly in Venezuela stands at the moment. Uh, it was they were elected 540 members, I believe, on on July 30th, and it caused a whole lot of um, of controversy. But b- before I get you to tell me w- where it stands at the moment, because they've been elected, can you explain to me why President uh, Nicolas Maduro wanted there to be a constituent assembly, what his idea behind it was, and and w- why the opposition opposed the, the election of, of this constituent assembly? Sure. Um, so the roots of all this uh, go back a couple of years. Um, we can start, you know, with a brief history. Nicolas Maduro was elected in April uh, 2013, uh, about a month after Hugo Chavez died. Um, and it was a closer election than many people thought, although he certainly, without a doubt, uh, was the winner of the election. The opposition didn't recognize it initially and eventually did. Um, about a year later, uh, the government had just won municipal elections in December 2013 and was doing pretty well politically 
when a series of opposition protests broke out um, in February 2014, lasting a couple months. And so that sort of started to break apart some of the fabric of Venezuelan society that had been woven together a little bit during the Chavez years, although there'd been a lot of conflict in that period as well. Um, and it sort of set in motion a political crisis that has continued to this day. Um, that political crisis has interacted with a deepening economic crisis that began in mid-2014 um, and uh, coincided with the fall of the price of oil and with the failure of the Venezuelan government to implement necessary currency reform, um, the consequence of which has been uh, shortages of key goods and services, um, sort of runaway, at times even hyperinflation, a dramatic decline in economic production, so negative economic growth um, in the last several years, getting worse every single year, and growing hunger, growing poverty, growing inequality in Venezuela. And like nothing um, on the store so shelves, in just incredible uh, stories about there being absolutely nothing on the store shelves. Yeah, and, you know, it's important to take all that with a grain of salt because the media we're getting it from is sometimes very opposed and has been very opposed to the Venezuelan government. But uh, my own fieldwork in Venezuela last summer and reports from other organizations suggest that even if the situation is not always as dire as the mainstream media makes it out to be, it is very bad. Um, and it's certainly the case that most people in Venezuela, probably upwards of 75 percent, have lost a significant amount of weight, you know, 15, 20 pounds even over the last several years, um, and really do have a tremendous amount of difficulty getting access to the basic goods and the basic food that they need to survive. So that's absolutely true. Um, so briefly, continuing the story, in December 2015, there was an election which the opposition won largely because um, popular sectors in Venezuela were really frustrated with the government. And so they either stayed home or a smallish segment of them voted for the opposition for the first time in over a decade. Um, so this allowed the opposition to come into power and created the condition for the current struggle that we're seeing now, where the government really tried to marginalize the National Assembly that took in January 2016. And the National Assembly, in turn, took a series of very aggressive actions trying to unseat uh, the democratically elected President Nicolás Maduro. Um, so that conflict sort of was the underlying dynamic over the last year and a half. Um, but things took a real turn for the worse this year in March, <clears throat> late March of this year, when the government, uh, through a Supreme Court ruling, effectively uh, dissolved the National Assembly, at least on a temporary basis. That set in motion a wave of often very violent protest against the government, uh, which has led to 120 deaths uh, between early April and July of this year. Um, and so in May of this year, Nicolás Maduro uh, took a controversial decision to call for a constituent assembly. Um, the reason it's controversial <clears throat> is that in 1999, when uh, Hugo Chávez called for a constituent assembly, he did, through, he did so by calling for a referendum in which the people of Venezuela were able to vote and decide whether or not they wanted an assembly to happen. That didn't happen this time at all. Uh, so instead, the Constituent Assembly was just called by the president of the country, Nicolás Maduro, um, and sort of happened without any legitimating process of people saying, we want this to actually happen. So the opposition was upset about that and decided to boycott uh, the process. Um, and there was also some debate, which hasn't been reported on a whole lot in the mainstream media, within Chavista sectors. 
Um, so the Chavista movement was fairly split about the Constituent Assembly. Um, I think eventually most uh, within Chavismo uh, supported it some more reluctantly than others, but a sort of vocal a dissident faction within Chavismo said that this was not a good idea. It wasn't going to resolve the economic crisis. It wasn't going to bring peace to Venezuela, and it didn't make any sense to go ahead with it. Um, so those are sort of the conditions within which the assembly uh, took place under a great cloud of controversy. Since it took place, um, things have developed a little bit different than I think some of us thought they would, that the assembly has, in fact, led to a sort of stabilization of the political crisis in Venezuela, um, which I personally hadn't foreseen because the levels of violence on the day of the Constituent Assembly were more intense than they had been at any point up till then. Ten so people were killed. The, the Constituent um, Assembly is now meeting? It is, yeah. So they were sworn in in the beginning of August, and they've been meeting uh, fairly continuously since that date. Um, they have passed a number of... Uh, different uh, measures, um, some of them dealing with the economy, some of them dealing with uh, political rights, some of them dealing with civic rights. Some of them are under discussion, so they haven't uh, been passed yet, but there's been controversial measures about um, hate speech on social media, uh, which um, sectors within Chavismo and certainly sectors in the opposition are worried are going to be used to target dissent. Um, the very first act of the Constituent Assembly was to depose the outgoing um, attorney general of Venezuela, a woman named Luisa Ortega, who had been increasingly critical of Maduro um, over the last several months. And so that was taken as a sign that the government was going to become more repressive, more intolerant of dissent than it had been. Um, and other actions have also sort of indicated that. The thing that I hadn't expected, and I think it's been interesting to use one word, uh, in terms of the current dynamic, is that the opposition seemed to be really blindsided by the assembly actually going forward, and the protests that have been happening in the streets for the four months preceding the assembly effectively ground to a complete halt. What's the composition of, of the constituent assembly? Who, who's on it? And is society at large kind of uh, observing and watching uh, its deliberations? Are they Are they televised? Are they on the radio? Are they publicized? Are people out there in the larger society kind of observing the constituent assembly and kind of, uh, you know, is it being reported on its deliberations? Yeah, those are great questions. Some of them I actually don't have specific knowledge about, although others I can speak to. Um, so I know some of the decisions have certainly been publicized. I don't know uh, for a fact if the hearings and the sort of deliberation within the Constituent Assembly is itself being televised minute by minute. Um, I do know that there's neighborhood sort of committees and regional committees that are meeting as well, and the Assembly has been working to sort of get out into Venezuelan society at large. Um, but the composition of the Assembly, because of the opposition boycott, is 100% Chavista. So there's not a broad sort of representation of opposing political forces in Venezuela. It's all Chavismo. Business people and and uh, the middle class and uh, people from all socioeconomic sectors, are they in there? Um, not officially. I mean, largely the middle class and business sectors are mostly part of the opposition. So politically speaking, they wouldn't be represented directly by Chavismo. Although there certainly are some middle-class Chavista supporters, and there's certainly some businesses that have had very friendly relations with the government. 
Um, so it's likely that there's still some interaction there. But the opposition as an organized political force is completely excluded from the assembly, um, although that must be said that that's uh, directly due to their own boycott of the process. So one of the things that I'm concerned about personally is that the leadership of the assembly is almost completely the same as the leadership of the ruling party and the leadership of the executive uh, and sort of legislative parts of the Venezuelan government who are part of Chavismo. Um, So allies of Nicolas Maduro are in the presidency of the assembly and really key posts. Um, And so the idea that it's going to really refound Venezuela through popular power and through spontaneous bottom-up mobilization doesn't square with who's actually leading the deliberations. However, there are a number of grassroots uh, sort of Chavistas who are also part of the assembly. A question I have, and I don't actually know, is to what extent they're able to carve out an autonomous space for uh, critique and internal debate um, that may go against the interests of the leadership. Um, To my knowledge, that hasn't happened, and I don't have a lot of hope for it to happen, but I do know that uh, grassroots Chavistas have been critical of the leadership, and so it's certainly plausible that there could be some of that within the assembly itself. So the end goal is to draft a new constitution. Yes. So the end goal is to draft a new constitution, and um, there's been statements that that could take up to two years. Um, There's also been sort of parallel processes happening that seem to be going forward, the gubernatorial elections that I discussed earlier, and then there's a presidential election that uh, as far as I know, is slated for October of 2018, so about a year and a month from now. Um, so it's possible that the deliberation that happens in the Constituent Assembly could totally rewrite the political playbook and throw either or both of those processes into disarray or into something new. But as of now, it looks like that's all going to still go forward as planned, although we don't know under exactly what circumstances. There's one other development I think it's important to bring in, which has officially speaking, nothing to do with the assembly. Um, And that's negotiations happening in the Dominican Republic right now between the government and the opposition. Uh, So it's been very difficult to get concrete, hard facts about that. But uh, there's sources saying that um, some top opposition leaders, including Julio Borges, who was the previous head of the National Assembly from the opposition party, uh, Primera Justicia, which means first will, our first justice um, in Venezuela is apparently in Venice. He's apparently going to the Dominican Republic to engage in these discussions with representatives of the government who have publicly and repeatedly confirmed their participation. And these are mediated by France and at least four other countries. So I don't um, understand so why. So uh, opposition uh, Venezuelan opposition member is communicating with people in in uh, in the Dominican Republic, for what purpose? To, 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 to interfere in, in what's going on back in Venezuela? Well, more to try to figure out uh, some sort of political solution to the conflict that still exists in Venezuela. I mean, polls show that a majority of Venezuelans are not happy with the situation of the country. And some polls suggest that uh, far more Venezuelans are supportive of the opposition than of Chavismo. Um, so the fact that there is this constituent assembly that's completely Chavista rewriting the Constitution doesn't take all of that and make it go away. Are these polls, um, is, is there the possibility, of, is there the possibility that these polls are manipulated by 
uh, to put it baldly, by by the United States, you know, polling organizations that have roots in the United States or abroad. Because I the question um, question yeah, I'm, I mean, question I'm leading up to is to what extent is the United States uh, interfering in the political process in Venezuela, and to what extent are Venezuela's economic problems the result of uh, essentially of sabotage? Yeah, so I mean I can speak directly to the fact that um, many popular sector Venezuelans who in the past have supported Chavismo no longer do. Uh, I was down in Venezuela for the 2015 election, and I spoke to dozens of people over the course of the day, and I was there for about a week uh, before and a couple days after, and many, many popular sector Venezuelans told me they were not going to vote for the government, they were going to vote for the opposition. So that, to me, suggests that the polls have some credibility, Um, and some of the polls that I've seen are from firms that have a reputation for being fairly objective. That said, uh, polls in Venezuela are not particularly accurate, and it is certainly the case that the United States has uh, tried to interfere repeatedly in Venezuela's internal affairs and certainly could have an interest in influencing um, things like poll results. But I don't think that that would mean there's not a lot of um, dissent and frustration on popular sectors with the U.S. government. So I think I mean, I would say for listeners, it's important to understand the complexity of the situation in Venezuela. As your question suggests, the U.S. does bear some responsibility for what's happened. Um, they have repeatedly over the last 15, almost 20 years, opposed the government in overt and covert ways. They've provided millions of dollars to the opposition. They've cheerleaded the opposition, even when they're engaging in really atrocious acts of violence. Um, they certainly provided some covert support for the military coup that overthrew Chavez in 2002. Um, They have uh, done sanctions against Venezuela, renewed sanctions, threatened uh, to sanction the oil industry, which would be truly crippling for the country's economy. Um, All of that has had an influence and a role in terms of stopping the country from recovering economically. However, having said that, Um, There's a lot the government could do and hasn't done, despite U.S. pressure and despite opposition pressure, to get the economy going again. Um, The main thing in particular is currency reform, which um, the U.S. isn't the one that's been stopping the government from doing that. It's just the government itself uh, refusing to engage in necessary but difficult policy shifts. Um, And I think that most Venezuelans agree with this, as the December 2015 elections show. Most Venezuelans are really fed up with the government, even though they're not, they don't have a lot of confidence in the opposition, and they certainly don't want uh, the U.S. to be more involved than it has been, and they want the U.S. really to step aside and let Venezuela resolve its conflict for itself. Um, so there's a lot of different factors happening um, at the same time, and I think people who are sort of sympathetic to the original aims of the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela are having a difficult time making sense of it right now because... It is unfortunately hard to fully support the government, given their repeated uh, failure to take necessary steps, given their repression of dissent within Chavismo and outside. Um, But it's also impossible to support the opposition, given their history of violence and their continuation of that through the present and their strong links to the U.S. So it's really a messy very, very challenging situation. Gabriel Hetland, last question. What's the most constructive, productive role that the international community can play in 
helping to, to foster the development of something positive and progressive in, uh, in Venezuela? Yeah, I think uh, there's two important things. I would say that the first is to, you know, firmly reject U.S. and other international attempts to interfere in Venezuela's affairs in an imperialist manner. Um, I think it's really crucial to say that sanctions would be utterly devastating to the country, um, especially if they targeted the oil sector. Um, the idea of a U.S. military has been floated by our president, Donald Trump, and that has to be loudly and repeatedly rejected because that would lead to a disastrous bloodbath. Um, so, you know, really standing firm against U.S. policy. Um, on the second hand, I think that uh, it's important to provide support to the people of Venezuela, which means also being critical of the government. Um, and it means really sort of trying to let the voices of sort of a third sector, which would be ordinary Venezuelans and critical factions within Chavismo, have some space in not just mainstream, but also alternative accounts of what's happening in Venezuela right now. I think that those voices have been too silent. We've been hearing from the opposition and from the government. And we really, to solve the problems within Venezuela, need to have a critical third force, which doesn't have a lot of legs right now. But anything that we can do to support that, I think, should be done. Gabriel Hetland, thank you so much for your time. Uh, super grateful. Sure. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Gabriel Hetland is an assistant professor of Latin American, Caribbean, and U.S. Latino studies at the State University of New York in Albany. Learn more about the current situation in Venezuela at greenplanetmonitor.net. You're listening to The Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Big boss man. Don't you great women of the blues, the late great Coco Taylor and Big Boss Man, accompanied by Jimmy Rogers and Louis Myers on guitar, David Myers on bass, and Fred Bello on drums. As Earth's climate warms, urban geographers and climatologists are predicting that human health will suffer. 
I spoke about this with Danny Blair, director of the Prairie Climate Center at the University of Winnipeg. It's funny, in this part of the world, people say, you know, if it's going to get warmer, just bring it on. Yeah, no, that's a very common response. You know, I, so in presentations recently, I've been showing what the projections say about the, the winters. The winters are going to get a lot warmer. They've already got a lot warmer. The, over the last 40 years or so, 40, 50 years, the winters across the prairies are, are about three or three and a half degrees warmer than they used to be. Well, even more so in the future. It's the one thing that's or one of the things that's almost guaranteed is the winters are going to shrink and be a lot warmer. We're still going to have cold weather and storms and so forth, but they're going to get a lot warmer and shorter, and we're going to lose those really cold days. So in near the end of this century, 2051, 2080, southern Manitoba, under the current scenario, the one we're following, will have, instead of having 13 or so minus 30 degree Celsius days, we'll essentially have none. None. Churchill cur- currently gets, Churchill, Manitoba, currently gets in an average winter about 50 minus 30 degree Celsius days or, or colder. 50 in an average winter. In the analysis that we did, Churchill will go down to about 5 from 50 to 5. So the, the, the northern parts of Manitoba and certainly the high Arctic in general are losing their winter. So if we follow this worst-case scenario for carbon, Churchill will have um, a very, very different winter. Uh, and, of course, this is, all, you know, this is related to the decline in the sea ice and all the implications of that on polar bears and the landscape and, and cultural traditions and food sources and such. But when I say this to people that, you know, in southern Manitoba here across the prairies, we'll lose all those minus 30 degrees Celsius days. People, if they don't say it out loud, they say it in their head. They go, whoo, you know, yay, that's a good thing. But then I said, remember, you can't have climate change or global warming in one season. Let's look at the summer. And then I show them that, you know, there's 40, 50 days of plus 30. And then not very many people say, yay, that's a good thing. Because that kind of summer with 40 to 50 plus 30 degrees Celsius days, that's northern Texas. That's Oklahoma. Do you want the summers of Oklahoma and Texas in southern Manitoba? Most people don't. I'm wondering about positive feedbacks. Mm-hmm. Like in, 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 up in Churchill and in the Canadian Arctic, as, as warming reaches levels of 5 or 6 or 7 degrees and ice melts and, and ice cover goes away and tundra melts and you're starting to get like decreased albedo. Right. And, and you know, release of methane and like is this being factored into into the calculation well, well certainly the albedo at that point like all oh. bets are off yeah well the, the methane you know and the you know the release of carbon from that's currently locked up in in permafrost and and uh, worst case scenario at the bottom of the ocean that is a, a real worry the the albedo issue is is certainly factored into the models you know and I, I, the, the amount of sea ice Decline or the decline in the in the amount of sea ice left, sea ice cover, let alone sea ice volume. The amount of sea ice cover that's left at the end of the summer is in. It's one of the most striking examples of climate change across the world. When you look at how much sea ice there is in in the northern hemisphere in September, at the end of the summer, if you will, it's been in not steady decline because it goes up and down with the you know the variability across the the years. But there's been an enormous reduction in the amount of sea ice in the Arctic. And if we continue along this track, some of the uh, sea ice experts, some of which are in, uh, in Manitoba here, Dave Barber at the University of Manitoba and his team, you know, it may be in 20, 30 years at the end of the summer, 
the Arctic, is, the Arctic Ocean is blue or liquid. And that means the planet, not just the Arctic, but the planet is darker, uh, reduced albedo, which means that the energy isn't being reflected off into outer space. It's being absorbed into the, the landscape of the Arctic, the, the seascape of the Arctic. That feedback is a very important feedback. So the planet gets darker because it's warmer, and it gets warmer because it gets darker. We are in that, that feedback process right now. We're, we're in positive feedback right now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, the Arctic is darker. The Arctic is absorbing more radiation at that time of the year when the sun is up because there's less sea ice. And so this has uh, enormous implications for the planet. And then on top of that is the, the worry about how much methane and, and carbon otherwise might be released into the atmosphere as the permafrost melts. That's, there's a, quite a bit of uncertainty about that. Uh, you know, there, every once in a while you see some high-profile media releases about carbon or methane bubbling up from the ocean in the, in the high Arctic off of uh, Russia or somewhere. Uh, that's probably happening to some degree. These, these hydrates at the bottom of the ocean are, are being exposed to warmer water, and that releases the, the methane and, and the carbon in general. Um, so how, how that's going to play out is one thing that's uncertain, but it, it is a thing that worries a lot of people as a, a feedback that isn't incorporated into the model, so we don't yet are, have a handle on just how that carbon will be released as the permafrost and, and, and the uh, other sources of carbon uh, get mobilized in the warmer temperatures. And these are going to be like, uh, I think, what are called non-linear effects. Like we're going to yeah. be seeing things that are like once we pass, mm -hmm. I mean, who knows where the tipping points are, but once you pass exactly. the tipping point, suddenly yeah. it's not like, uh, you know, as I yeah, said, all, all bets are off and no, yeah. nobody can predict, predict anything. Yeah, that's a very good point. And that's one of the reasons why the, you know, the global community has chosen two degrees Celsius as as, as warm as we should go for the planet. You know, we shouldn't go beyond two degrees above uh, pre-industrial because the worry is, and it's, it's not really verifiable, but the worry is that if we go beyond two, then we'll pass some of these tipping points that we can't really stop the methane from being released. We really can't stop the feedback processes from really kicking into, into gear. Whether, that's, whether two degrees is, is you know, a, a, a number that really means something from a climatological feedback point of view is debatable and probably isn't, uh, but it's a, it's a tangible target that we're trying to, re trying to, um, to reach with the Paris meetings and, and, uh, and the follow-ups to that. Danny Blair is a climatologist in the Department of Geography at the University of Winnipeg and the director of the University of Winnipeg's Prairie Climate Center. All right, nurse, bring the next patient in. Get up on this table, pull off that gown, raise up that right leg, let that left one down, pull off them stockings, that silk underwear, the doctor's got to cut you, mama, Lord knows where. Got two or three tunes, shaped like a cube, two or three leaves in your inner tube. Bring on that ether, bring on that gas. Doctor, 
water. Shh, be quiet now. Be quiet. Oh, doctor, I'm so sick. That's all right. The doctor ain't going to hurt you. Can I have a little water, doctor? After a while. Oh, doctor, what you going to do with that long knife? Oh, don't worry about that. That's just a doctor's tooth. Oh, what you going to do with that saw? Oh, we just take off legs with that. Oh. Be quiet now. I'll tell you now. Four monkey wrenches and a two-horse shake. Uh, Pair of old britches and a bale of hay. Uh, Your ribs were kind of loose. They moved about. If I hadn't sold you up, everything would fail out. Uh, I put in new tubes, the exhaust. I went into your hood and cleaned your scarf gloves off. Your body's kind of weak. Now don't be hard. From now on, be careful with them connection rods. All right, doctor. The doctor knows to fix it. The doctor knows just what to do. Oh, gee, doctor, but I feel fine. Oh, that's fine. Hey, doctor, I feel like I want to do a little mess around. That's so. Go ahead. Oh, hey, doctor, that's good. Now, that's the way patients do to come to this hospital. Your body's kind of weak. Don't be hard. Go kind of easy with them connection rods. All right, doctor. Oh, the doctor knows to fix it. He knows just what to do. Terrible Operation Blues. Big Bill Brunzi on guitar and vocals, accompanied by Jane Lucas and Georgia Tom Dorsey on piano. A 1930 recording. Getting world leaders to address climate change impacts 20 or 30 years down the line or at the end of the century is hard enough. What Earth will be like in five or 600 years if greenhouse gases continue to be released at business-as-usual rates couldn't be farther from their minds. Rob Wilder thinks we should be taking the long view. Wilder, a clean energy specialist, and colleague Dan Kamen, a professor of energy at the University of California in Berkeley, co-authored a recent essay about the forever legacy of climate change. I caught up with Rob Wilder. Can you paint a picture for me of what the surface of the earth will look like given business as usual carbon emissions 500 years from now? Yeah. Let me first address the first part of your point, which I think is important. We don't think beyond... 2100 or 2050, and then because in the past we we had pollutants like uh, oxides of nitrogen, sulfur dioxide, that were relatively short-term phenomena, like acid rain. So England was dealing with this. Uh, famously, there were killer smogs. You know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, burning lots of coal. But it's a short-lived phenomenon. Just like China, it will will go through this pain, this horrible coal pollution, but eventually it will be washed out from atmospheric precipitation and the like. And after a century or two centuries, the, the issue is more or less resolved. It's, it's mitigated uh, from our perspective. So CO2 is fundamentally different, where the, the, the important thing here is 
there is a significant fraction of the CO2, let's call it 20%, that lingers for centuries. And then compi compiling on that, there's the inertia of sea level rise, which goes on for thousands of years, millennia. A sea level rise could change the, the world's map, literally drowning major megacities. We don't know exactly what 2300, 2500, 2400, even 2200 will look like, but the fact that sea level rise is, I'm getting increasingly convinced, accelerating after 2100, getting worse. So, you know, if we say, oh, it's, it's only a, a little over an inch a decade now, and if it becomes just inches a decade in, in, in um, decades from now, uh, what if it becomes, in the geologic record, 10 feet in a century? You know, if you've got 10 feet in a century, a couple centuries, and you've lost the state of Florida. Most people have no, no conception of what uh, a, a two-degree rise vis-a-vis uh, -vis pre-industrial levels, a two-degree Celsius rise in temperature means. They think, geez, that's a two-degree Celsius on average. That's not that much. Well, uh, I, I think offhand, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. To me, that feels like, again, it's not weather. It's not that tomorrow's weather will be 83.6 instead of 80 degrees. It, to me, it's think of the embodied energy in the ocean. So when you have a hurricane that was one, category one, like this, this one we've just had that swept through the Caribbean, and suddenly it shoots up to category five in 30 hours. It goes from 60, 65 miles an hour to 160 mile an hour winds. The, when you look at Arctic sea uh, ice and, and, and Greenland uh, uh, ice, uh, the, the ice in the Antarctic that's land on land that then melts, the changes are fantastic, not in a good sense, but are uh, terrific in a terrible sense of what two degrees that becomes four and five and six degrees Celsius. So there's that cartoon ice, what was it, ice age. I watched it with my kids. It was great with ice like a mile or two high. When that sits over North America and Europe, we lose England. We lose Northern Europe. They're gone. They're extinguished, more so than or as much as atomic warfare. That's from that six, seven degrees Celsius change. So it's not like weather. So like in other words, uh, uh, over geologic time, over the last 100,000 years, uh, shifts in temperature of, uh, or longer than that, shifts in temperature of five or six or seven degrees on average have meant the difference between the ice age, ice ages, and and periods when there have, hasn't been any any ice cover at all at the poles, like periods of where where the entire surface of Earth has been essentially tropical. Like the difference between those extremes is a matter of between five and ten degrees. Yeah, we we have had a snowball Earth. We've had an Earth that was covered in ice. And we've had just what you described, where the equator, equatorial region, is essentially not much difference in temperature from the poles. We can't conceive of that, but both states existed. Geologists, geologic science tells us. I believe the science. I, I love science. And we can't conceive of it because we've just been around really for about, let's say, recorded record and oral records. We'll call it 10,000 years or less, and we cannot conceive of 55 million years ago, 200 million years ago. But these states existed. And I get concerned. I just was reading about uh, a piece um, uh, published uh, by Scripps uh, Oceanography, a place that I uh, love dearly, 
where it says this is an existential threat to humanity, meaning it could mean the extinction potentially over time. Now, that's, that's a worst-case scenario, so I don't want to emphasize that. But the point is 5, 10, 12 degrees Celsius, yeah, is enormous. What do you mean when we say uh, what, badly de- what badly needs to be brought home to the public is the massive inertia in the climate, climate system? What do we mean by that? What do, what do you mean by that? So what we mean is I, I have these old cars, for example, and I'm working on my old cars, and if some oil spills uh, out of a crankcase or there's some, some, some minor spillage, I'll clean it up, and tomorrow the issue will be gone. CO2 doesn't, you, you cannot clean it up in that sense, uh, absent some fantastic endeavor I can't even conceive of. Uh, so the problem lingers. And it doesn't linger for a year or decades or 100 years. It lingers for, as I'm saying, thousands and thousands, tens and hundreds of thousands of years. So there's an inertia because when, for example, we came out of the last ice age, temperatures stabilized, let's call it 8,000 years ago or so, but the sea kept rising till about, call it 3,000 years ago. The, the, the seas keep rising beyond the time that temperatures stabilize, and temperatures will keep rising beyond the time we, well, far beyond the time we stop emitting CO2. And that's what I mean by the inertia. We were pushing my car into the garage. We stopped pushing and the car kept moving. And it could have, you know, gone much too far, hit a wall in essence, even though we'd stopped pushing. There's inertia in the system. And then there are the non-linearities. There, there are the tipping points, the, the positive feedbacks which suddenly, suddenly uh, things are moving along relatively stably, shifting slowly, and then suddenly there's a seismic shift. Uh, you know, the Greenland ice sheet slips into the ocean, or the, uh, the thermal haline circulation turns off, and Europe goes into a deep freeze over a period of maybe a, a couple of years, I don't know. So sudden shifts. Yep, your, your listening audience is probably well aware of that. I, we, we just spent springtime in England, a place that, if you look at the map, I mean, what is it near off of cold, cold northern Canada, England, certainly northern Europe, like Norway, I visited much more so. Without that, that circulation of, of the ocean, um, the warm water from, from the Gulf of Mexico, with, without that Gulf Stream, warm Gulf Stream, Europe would be far colder. England, for example, would be under ice. So you think, oh, it's just, it's just that one straw that, you know, what is it, Jenga, where the whole thing falls down or the straw that breaks the camel's back, and you think, oh, it's just, one more billion tons of CO2, what, what could that do? And then suddenly, relatively sun, suddenly in a geologic sense, uh, that just like you say, the Gulf Stream shuts down and, 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 and Europe is, is extinguished, is destroyed entirely, and England. Uh, and I love, love England. So I, I just, this, this, the fact that we're not talking about it, just, just among policymakers, that there is this, this resistance to accepting science among a major political party and an executive administration, this anti-science-ness, I, I, I don't get because how, how, could you, how can you not care? Uh, you, you ask uh, or you say in your article, uh, uh, without large-scale coordinated action on many levels across government, academia, and the private sector, our efforts to drastically cut emissions will fall, fall far short of what chemistry and physics demand. Do you think, Rob, that large-scale coordinated action is uh, 
is is possible? What's the what what are the possibilities from where you are right now? So when I write, I'm speaking as someone. My expertise is not. I'll say it once again: is not climate, but it is energy, clean energy. That area I know, and I can say with with really exquisite confidence that we could do far more in clean energy. I think of China when I was young. I'm 57 years old now. I think of China when I was 20 years old. And when you said made in China, it meant polluting and crappy quality. It meant a lot of things, uh, poor working conditions. Now you look at that gear that's made in China and clean energy, and the quality's gotten significant, significantly better. Um, the, 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 their, their type of energy is really shifting towards much more clean, clean energy. And so what I'm saying is if China can do it, why can't we? I mean, I don't understand. Europe's got lots of offshore wind. We barely have any. It's been it's been years, probably now it's been, I would say, decades of the fight to put in wind offshore of the northeast of the U.S. We could have all kinds of wind power off Chicago. We could have it off the Pacific Northwest. We could have it off the Atlantic coast of the U.S. We could be generating all of our power, all of it for not just transportation, but for power generation. We could replace thermal plants like natural gas and coal with wind and solar. It, it's, it's without breaking a sweat. And, and that's my expertise, and that's sort of why. And make a lot of profit and be world leaders. China's moving there quickly and eating our lunch. That's where my expertise is. That's where I'm disappointed, the U.S., which, which has had a lead in the past, as had Germany, as had uh, uh, Japan, for example, in solar, we've we've all ceded that ground to China. Rob Wilder is a member emeritus of the Directors Council at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego, California. He chairs the advisory committee for Wilder Hill Clean Energy Index. For a link to Rob Wilder and Dan Kamen's article, go to greenplanetmonitor.net. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio. Subscribe to our podcast at www.greenplanetmonitor.net. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. Bye for now.